Welcome, everyone. If you are new or visiting our church family, my name is Aaron. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad that uh, you're with us today. I'm excited to be back. For those of you that are new, uh, I had surgery a couple weeks ago, so I've been gone for a couple weeks recovering, but I'm about 80% as far as uh, being able to speak today, and so I'm going to give you my best. I uh, still can't pick anything else up, but uh, it's, it's, it's all good. I, I don't have to do a lot around the house right now, so there are benefits to surgery. So I've had a couple weeks with no responsibility, haven't had to take care of the kids, haven't had to do any chores around the house, and so I've had a lot of time to just pray and read and study, and I am so full right now that I can't wait to bring you this series, which I really believe is going to be a defining season for our church. Before we jump into it, let me point out a couple of things. DNA is this Thursday night. DNA is our student ministry night. This is high school and middle school combined, 6th grade to 12th grade. We do it once a month. Invite all the students out. It's going to be a great Thursday this week. And then, again, let me uh, personally invite you to team night. I know Cedric just talked about it. Very significant night for us as a church. We invite everyone who serves in any level, whether you're on a dream team or whether you're in a small group leadership or whether you're part of one of our outreaches, going out to serve the homeless or going down to Mexico, this is our night to pour into the people that serve. And let me also say, if you're thinking about being a part of a team around here, why don't you join us this night and just kind of be around the rest of the team and see, see if you like the team first, and then you can decide whether you join it. This is going to be a great night. If you've ever been around Pastor Larry, we've had him a few times at our church. There's no one like him. I mean, this guy, you know, he reminds me of uh, Enoch in the Old Testament. He's somebody who just walks with God. I don't, I don't think Pastor Larry will ever die. I think the Lord's just going to take him to heaven one day like Enoch because he just walks with God in just such a, a very humble, gentle way. But when he speaks, it's just so full of life. So it's going to be a great night. And then he's going to be with all of the men on Saturday morning. So I want to invite all the men to join us for breakfast Saturday morning. And uh, wives, if you have a husband in our church, you want him to be at this breakfast. I promise you, even more than helping around the house or helping with the kids on Saturday morning, you want him to be at this breakfast because every time I run on Pastor Larry, he makes me want to be a better man. He makes me want to be a better husband. He makes me want to be a better father, not in like this judgmental way, but in this very gentle way, just the way he carries himself, the way he talks. He wrote the book Model Man that a lot of the men in our church have gone through as a small group. Just, just really an amazing guy, and so it's going to be a great weekend with Pastor Larry. If you've got your message notes, I want to invite you to pull those out. Uh, if you notice, our small group questions are there for the, for the fall semester of small groups. And let me encourage you, even if you're not in a sermon-based small group, I want to encourage you to do these questions, even if you just do them by yourself. Take some time and really think through these questions or, or grab some people in your family that are at church with you this weekend or friends you know and just talk about these questions. The way we like to say it is the weekend is the lecture, the small group is the lab. And when you're in college, you need a little bit of lecture and you need a little bit of lab. You need to have kind of an experience where you, where you can kind of touch it with your fingers and feel it and, and, and kind of get your hands dirty in, in the material a little bit. That's what these questions are designed to do, is to allow you to go deeper into the message, and especially with the series we're in right now, I want you to get the most out of it. Because here's, here's the point of this series. The purpose of this series is I want to correct some teaching for those of us who grew up in church. There are a lot of us here today who grew up in church, and unfortunately, many of us who grew up in church, we were taught the wrong things. We were taught things that that really were man-made, that when you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't say a lot of the stuff that we were taught. 
We were taught these things because people had, you know, other motives to try to get people to do things that didn't feel like the Bible was enough, and so they added some thoughts to the Bible that aren't there. And so I want to correct some teaching that many of us grew up under. And then for those of you that are new to Christianity, I want to, I want to help protect you so that when you hear this stuff in the future, you know how to say, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. That's not at all you know, what God meant, what the Bible says. That, that is not true at all. And I want to give you a clear picture of who God is. And so we're going to, we're going to study this Hebrew word, hasset. Has said. Now, to say it correctly, you got to have that, that Jewish guttural, that sound, you know, in your voice. I can't do it. I'm not even going to try it. it it's a chesed word. I, I, I'm just going to say chesed. And so you can, you can join me if you don't know how to do that guttural thing. Join me and just say chesed. It's much easier. It's a very, very popular word. We had a Jewish scholar at church last night who teaches Hebrew studies at Point Lone University. And she came to me after service. She said, this is my favorite word to study. I study this word all the time. In fact, if you Google this word, you're going to find tons of blogs by Jews and Christians alike on this word said because it's so rich, it's so deep, it has so much meaning. But what I want to do is I want to unlock it even more. And for those of you who've never heard the word, I want to help you understand what it is. And for those of you who have heard it, I'm going to take you a little bit deeper and unlock it further for you. So I'm going to start with one of the most significant verses in the Bible, John chapter 1, verse 16. It says, out of his fullness. God is so full. God is so full. Doesn't, doesn't give you out of his poverty or out of his lack or out of his need. He gives you out of his fullness. We have all received grace. Grace. But not just grace. We've received grace in place of the grace that was already given us. That's how full God is. That's how rich God is. That we don't just receive grace from God, but he gives us grace on top of grace. He gives us grace in place of grace, grace that we've already received. He gives us even more grace on top of that because he's full of grace. Grace is one of the most beautiful words when you understand the heart of grace, the meaning of grace. It was the gospel that Paul preached. Paul preached a message of grace. And here's the thing, when you preach on grace, just like the Apostle Paul, you're going to be misunderstood. Paul was misunderstood oftentimes because of the gospel that he preached. People criticized Paul, people attacked Paul, and he had to spend a lot of time writing to defend the message he preached because people didn't understand it, they didn't like it, they criticized it. It wasn't comfortable to our, to our flesh to hear a message of grace. And what I've realized is Unless people misunderstand you every once in a while, unless people criticize you every once in a while, you might not be preaching the message Paul preached. And so I, I love the fact when people wrestle sometimes when you give them grace because it means we're going the right direction as a church. Because here's the thing, growing up for me, and what I see in a lot of churches today is what we preach is do good, get good, do bad, get bad. That's what we see a lot in Christianity today. If you do good, like you do the right things, like if you pray and you read your Bible, then God is going to bless you. But if you don't do the right things, like if you sin and you make mistakes and you forget to read your Bible, then bad things are going to happen. And unfortunately, that's a lot of what we heard growing up in church. If you do good, you're going to get good. If you do bad, you're going to get bad. Here's the problem. I don't need the Holy Spirit to believe that. See, the truth is, 
I can receive good that I don't deserve. Because somebody else received bad that he didn't deserve. And that's the message of grace. That's why I need the Holy Spirit. I don't need the Holy Spirit to believe do good, get good, do bad, get bad. Religion teaches that. We're born believing that. That's what the world teaches. If you work hard, you'll get ahead. If you, if you train hard, you're going to excel. Do good, get good, do bad, get bad. I need the Holy Spirit to believe that I can receive a good that I don't deserve. Because somebody else received all of my bad they didn't deserve. That's what I need God's Spirit to believe because that is not a natural belief. And so we go into the theme verse of the series, the next verse 17. For the law, the law, the Ten Commandments, right and wrong, was given through Moses. But grace and truth came, not given, came through Jesus Christ. You see, I can give you something, I can send you something on Amazon, or I can come over to your house personally. The law was given, grace came. Now, how does this play into this, this Hebrew word, hased? Because isn't the New Testament written in Greek, the Old Testament written in Hebrew? So, so where are you getting this word hased from? Well, for years, the English translators struggled translating the Hebrew word hased. That's why when you read the Old Testament, depending on what translation of the Bible you're reading, you'll always get a different word. Some Bibles translate hased as loving kindness. Some Bibles translate hased as mercy. Some Bibles translate hased as, as his unfailing love or enduring love, enduring love. Some just say it's God's love. It's, it's different depending on the translation you read. Because they always struggle to really capture a word that encompassed the full weight of what hased truly means until around the 1800s. In the 1800s, there was a Hebrew scholar, Franz de Litt, who decided to translate a Hebrew New Testament. There were a lot of Jewish people finding Christ, and they needed a New Testament in the Hebrew language. So he set apart to translate the New Testament from Greek to Hebrew. Well, when he came to John chapter 1, and he began to go through John chapter 1, he comes to the Greek word charis, which we translate as grace. He translated into the Hebrew Bible the word grace, he translated as hased. You see, hased is grace. Grace is the word that encompasses all the other words. You see, God's grace is his loving kindness. God's grace is his mercy. God's grace is unfailing love. It's enduring love. It never fails. It goes on forever. That is God's grace. Grace is a word that is big enough to encompass all of the other words. Now you ask, well, why didn't, they, why, why didn't they realize this in the Old Testament? Well, I personally believe the full revelation of grace didn't happen until we had the New Testament, until we had Jesus. That's when the full revelation of grace truly took hold. Now, here's the thing about grace. Grace is not a topic. Like when you go to Bible college and there's different topics like, you know, hermeneutics and, and theology and Christology and pneumatology, all the different topics. Grace is not a topic. Grace is not a class. Grace is not a message. Grace is a person. It is the very person of Christ. You see, the law was given. The law is not a person. The law was given to us. Grace came to us. Grace and truth came in the person of Jesus. And grace is hased. It's God's hased. Now, when you read the Old Testament, hased is a word they were fired up about. Like they, 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 David used this word all the time. In the Psalms alone, David used the word hased 
127 times. He would sing of God's said. He would talk about God's said. He, he, he loved to, to write about God's said. And the most famous psalm in the Bible, Psalm 23, David says, Surely your goodness and your said, your grace, will follow me all the days of my life. Your said is going to follow me around. In Psalm 51, the psalm David wrote after he committed adultery and he had a man murdered. See, what was amazing about David is David was a, a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. David and Joseph are the two clearest pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. David, Jesus, both born in Bethlehem. David and Jesus, both shepherds. David and Jesus, both defeated giants. Jesus, the giant of sin. David, Goliath. David and Jesus, both famous kings. David, the most famous king of the Old Testament. Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. What was interesting about David when you study his life is David lived with a new covenant mentality in the Old Covenant. David lived like a New Testament Christian in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, today we have a lot of New Testament Christians living under the Old Testament law. That's the problem. David, when, when you watch the way David would worship in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament there was all sorts of protocols that you had to go through to come into the presence of God. David would bypass all of the protocol and just come into the presence of God. David, again, he lived like a New Testament Christian in the Old Testament. And so after he committed adultery, the penalty of his sin was death. But he comes to God and he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing grace and to, according to your said. You see, um, th th this is a New Testament concept. In the Old Testament, you had to bring you know, a sacrifice, a blood offering. And David says, according to your said, according to your grace, have, not because of who I am, not because I deserve it, but because of your grace. Have mercy on me. Psalm 63, your hased is better than life. Your hased is better than life. Remember, David was a man after God's heart. He says, your hased is better than life. Your grace is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in hased. This is the Old Testament God. See, so many people think the Old Testament God was mean and ugly and hard, and the New Testament God is nice and loving. No, 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 no. The Old Testament God is compassionate. The Old Testament God is gracious. He's slow to anger. His, his anger lasts, the Old Testament says, but a moment, but his grace endures forever. That's a picture of the Old Testament God. He's abounding in hased, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his hased for those who fear him. Remember, we talked about that word fear a few weeks ago. Jesus, every time he quoted the Old Testament, anytime Jesus got to a phrase in the Old Testament that talked about the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, Jesus always changed the word to worship. You see, the way Jesus interpreted fear is the word worship. Anytime you see the word fear in the Old Testament, change it to the word worship, to those who worship him. In Psalm 136, he says, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His hased endures forever. You see, God's anger lasts but a moment. His hased endures forever. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. He's gracious. His grace lasts forever. So was David exaggerating when he said your hased is better than life? Was David exaggerating when he says your grace, your hased endures forever? Forever they were fired up over this concept, has said. 
So I think it's important enough for us to study and to really get the depth of, of what this means. But I know what you're thinking, because I thought about it ahead of time, so I wanted to be prepared today. What you're thinking and what you're asking me right now is, but wait a second, Pastor, isn't it grace and truth? And I'm so glad you're asking me this question, because I really wanted to answer this today. Because I knew this was on your mind. You're thinking to yourself, wait a second, it's not just grace. It says grace and truth. So it's not just grace, it's grace and truth. Because verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, now let me show you something that, that when, you, when you study the original Greek text, this word came and the Greek language is a singular verb. I mean, we have plural verbs and we have singular verbs. Singular verb means there's one subject. Plural verb means there's two subjects. How many know God's economy is different than our economy? See, for our economy, one plus one equals what? Two. God's economy, one plus one equals one. The two will become one. A man shall leave his father and mother, and the two become one flesh. So in God's economy, God's economy, one plus one equals one. Grace and truth are not two different things. They're one thing. See, the writer uses a singular verb to say these are the same. But this is what I've heard growing up in church, and, and I still hear this today from a lot of people. You know, anytime people get, you know, they, they get uncomfortable with the message of grace, this is inevitably what I hear from people. They come to me and they say something like this. You know, Pastor, it's okay to preach that grace, but we also have to give people truth. How many of you ever heard that? It's okay to preach grace, but you also need to give people truth. Like, you can't just preach grace. People also need truth. You've got to give them the truth. And what they mean is grace is like the good part of God. Grace is like his goodness, his mercy, his love. But truth is God's expectations. Like, this is what God expects out of you. These are, these are God's demands. God, God you know, this is, this, this is God's truth. Don't commit adultery and don't murder. And, and this is what God wants for your life. Like the law, the Ten Commandments. That's God's truth. That's what they mean when they say that to me. Let me ask you a question today. What side of the fence does God put truth on, the side of the law or the side of grace? Do you see it? What God has joined together, let no man separate. God did not put truth on the side of the law. God put truth on the side of grace. So it cannot mean what people think it means. I mean, think about it. If truth is God's expectations, if truth is the law, the Ten Commandments, the way you're supposed to live your life, then why did Jesus in John chapter 8 say this? For you will know right and wrong, and right and wrong will set you free. Do you realize Jesus is talking to Jewish people? Jewish people who grew up memorizing the law. They had the law memorized. They had entire books of Moses' writing memorized by heart. They wore boxes on their head to remind them of the law. They knew the law better than anyone. They knew right and wrong better than anyone. So why would Jesus say, you'll know right and wrong, and right and wrong will set you free? They had the law for 1,500 years, and none of them were free. So truth cannot mean what we think truth means. So what is truth? What is the truth that sets us free? Well, it says the Torah, the law, was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Grace and truth in the Hebrew is hesed ve'emeth. Hesed, 
So you got hased, they, that's a conjunction, it means and, emeth. If you ever met anybody named Emmet, Emmet is the word truth. Hased, they, emeth. That, that's what he's saying in the Hebrew. The law was given through Moses, hased, they, emeth, came through Jesus. So again, let me show you in the Old Testament that truth cannot mean what people think it means. David, in the Old Testament, King David, uh, he loved Saul. Even though Saul was horrible to him and Saul tried to kill him, he still loved Saul and he honored Saul. And after King Saul died and his son Jonathan died, the Philistines killed Saul and his son Jonathan. And then the Philistines took the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and to humiliate and make a public spectacle, they hung them on the walls of Bet-Shean. Now, I've stood there right where the wall would have been, right up on the hill of Bet-Shean, where they hung Saul's bodies. And then the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which is modern-day Jordan, you can see it on the mountain range across from us, the men of Jabesh-Gilead loved Saul, and so they broke through the Philistine enemy lines, and they came to retrieve the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and their bones and bring them back to give them the proper burial that they deserve. And David was moved by the men of Jabesh-Gilead. So look what David says in 2 Samuel Chapter 2, verse 5, not in your notes, but look at verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this hased to Saul. You have shown grace to Saul, grace that he didn't deserve. You've shown him grace, this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and you have buried him. And then David says, now, now, now he's blessing them. He's blessing them. Now may the Lord show you hased they amet. May the Lord show you hased vei ameth, loving kindness and truth to you, and I will also show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now, why would David bless them with truth if truth meant right and wrong, if truth was the law? Like, may the Lord bless you with thou shalt not. Like, it makes no sense. Why would David do that? If, if truth wasn't good news, why would he use it as a blessing? You see, what hased vei ameth means is true grace. It's the truth of grace. What is the truth that sets you free? You have been forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, because of the finished work of the cross. That's truth. Truth is you have received an abundant provision of grace. You have received a gift of righteousness that you didn't deserve because Jesus received a gift of punishment he didn't deserve. Jesus was treated the way you deserve so that you can be treated the way Jesus deserved. Jesus took all of your punishment. You took all of his righteousness. That is the truth. And when you believe in that truth, that truth sets you free. You see, it's the truth of grace that sets us free. But here's the fear. People think, well, if you preach this, like if you let people know that all their sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, they're going to live however they want to live. Like you can't preach that, Pastor. People are going to use that as an excuse to live in sin. I'll tell you what, anyone who's ever really understood the forgiveness of God and the grace of God, no one has ever had the reaction, oh, now I'm going to go sin. Like it doesn't make you want to sin. You lose your desire for sin. The Bible says when you behold God in his glory, you're transformed into his image. What is the glory of God? His grace, his goodness, his mercy. When you see the glory of God, it transforms. Things in your life begin to change without you even trying. But again, the problem with Christianity today is, is we're not fully under the law, but we're not fully under grace. We're, we're somewhere caught in the middle. We call it mixture. Mixture. We've got a little bit of grace, and we've got a little bit of law, and that's the biggest problem in Christianity today. And, and let me say, here's the problem with mixture. 
Mixture is a huge problem. It'll kill you. Mixture will kill you. This is why God said, I'd rather you be hot or I'd rather you be cold. Either be fully under the law or fully under grace. But if you're lukewarm, if you're a mixture, if you're, if you're a combination of the two, I'll spit you out of mouth. It, it's, it's terrible to live under mixture. And unfortunately, most Christians today are living under a form of mixture. And here's what Jesus said about it. Jesus said, no one sews a patch of unchunked cloth. Like, no one takes a new patch and puts it on an old garment. Why? Because the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. If you've ever lived under mixture, that's what it feels like. It feels like you're being torn apart inside. Like, you're not good enough for grace. You're not good enough for the law. You're like in this no man's land, and it just feels so uncomfortable, and, and you don't feel like God likes you, and you don't really feel like you're, you're, you're a total sinner. You're just kind of caught in between. Jesus goes on to say, neither do people put new wine, that's grace, into old wineskins, that's the law. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. It just destroys your life. Like when you try to mix grace and law, it destroys your life. You feel like you're bursting. You feel like you're being torn apart. It ruins everything. And the thing is, nobody, like, like I've never met anyone who's fully under the law. See, most of us, the majority of our life, we try to live under grace. It's just that little bit of law. Here's the problem. If you live 99% under grace and you just add 1% of the law into your Christianity, you ruin it all. You ruin it all. See, James put it like this. For a person who keeps all of the laws except one, like if you just blow it in one, we'll be as guilty as somebody who's broken all the law. So if you just try to add one to it, or you try to do a little bit, it just ruins the whole process for you. This is why Paul, dealing with the Galatians, he says, you foolish Galatians, you fools. What, what's really surprising to me, if, if you study the Bible, Paul never called the Corinthians foolish. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Paul, not one time in either of his letters to the Corinthians called them foolish, but he calls the Galatians foolish a couple times. Now, the Corinthians, they had all sorts of crazy sin going on in the church. They had temple orgies going on. They had a guy sleeping with his father's wife. All sorts of crazy sin, and not one time does Paul call them foolish. And yet the Galatians, who were very, very religious and trying to follow all of the rules and trying to be very good Christians, Paul says, you're a bunch of fools. I don't know if you ever thought about it like that before, but it's very interesting. Why? Because the Galatians were buying into mixture. See, the Corinthians were in sin, but the Galatians were in the mixture. And mixture will kill you more than sin will. So he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. You see, Christianity is done, religion is due. Paul's saying, listen, it was done on your behalf. He was crucified for your sin. He was punished for everything you've done wrong. Well, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? So is it because of how good of a Christian you were and how well you obeyed and how many of the Ten Commandments you followed? Or was it by believing what you heard, believing has said they ameth, the, the gospel of grace, the truth of grace? Are you so foolish 
after beginning by means of the Spirit. So you began the journey by grace. Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Now he goes on in chapter 4 to explain the difference between spirit and flesh. And he uses Abraham's two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He said Isaac was born of the Spirit. Ishmael was born of the flesh. What does it mean? See, walking in the flesh is not walking in sin. Walking in the flesh is trying to earn your own righteousness. Walking in the flesh is self-righteousness. Ishmael was born when Abraham took matters into his own hands and tried to produce the promise with his own effort. Isaac was born supernaturally by grace. It was impossible for them to get pregnant. It was impossible to have Isaac. It was, it was the grace of God that Isaac was born. So walking in the spirit is not walking in obedience. It's walking under grace. And walking in the flesh is not walking in sin. It's walking in self-righteousness, trying to earn your righteousness by how good of a Christian you are. And so Paul says, you began Christianity by grace. Why are you now trying to, to finish it by the law? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really is in vain? And this is, this is what we do. Like we come into the front door by grace. We all understand it's grace. It's Jesus died on the cross for us. But then after we get saved, we start feeling like, now I need to do something. Like I, I need to earn it now. Like I need, I need to make sure that I can deserve this. And so then we start adding rules into our Christianity. When the whole journey is supposed to be grace. Grace is not the beginning of Christianity. It's the whole race. We never leave walking in the spirit. We never leave walking under grace. So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law because you deserve it, because you're being a really good Christian, or by believing what you heard? What did they hear? Has said they met the truth of grace. That was the gospel that Paul preached. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. He didn't earn it. He didn't deserve it. Like if you study Abraham's life, he definitely didn't deserve it. Abraham was not that great of a guy. But he believed God and it was credited as righteousness. See, the truth is when you believe in Jesus, your account gets credited as righteousness. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're good enough. You get credited with righteousness because Jesus was good enough. Because Jesus deserved it on your behalf. It's credited to you. All of your sin was credited to him on the cross. All of his righteousness was credited to you. So now the rest of your life, God treats you as if you obeyed perfectly because Jesus obeyed perfectly. God treats you as if you're righteous because Jesus was righteous, not because you deserve it, not because you're living it, not because you earn it, not because you're perfect, because Jesus was. It's credited to you as a gift. It's beautiful. So let me show you the power of grace, the power of grace. Because again, people think like if you preach this grace message, you're giving people an excuse to sin. No, when you preach grace, you, you, you take the desire for sin out of people's life. The more grace you understand, the less you want to sin. The harder you try to fight against sin, the deeper you're going to go. The more you just embrace God's grace and receive God's grace and receive the gift of righteousness and believe the truth of grace has said vehement, the less you want to do those things because your heart Christianity is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. The only thing that transforms your heart is beholding God in his glory, seeing the beauty of who he is, his grace, his sesed vehemeth. That's what changes you from the inside out. I mean, just think about the difference. The very first miracle of the law was Moses turning water into blood that produced death. The very first miracle of grace was Jesus turning water into wine that produced life and celebration. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, 50 days later, they celebrated the Shavuot, Pentecost. 3,000 people died. When grace had fully come on the day of Pentecost, 1,500 years later, 3,000 people were born again. 
The law demands righteousness from sinfully bankrupt mankind. Grace imparts righteousness to sinfully broken people. The law says, I will not forget your sins even to the third and fourth generation. I'm going to punish generations of your family after you. Grace says, I will remember your sins no more. The law says in Genesis 20, just count how many times Genesis 20, God says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Then go to the new covenant of grace, Hebrews chapter 8. How many times does God say, I will, I will, I. God doesn't put any thou shalt nots on us under the new covenant. It's I will do it. I will give you a new heart. I will give you the desires. I'll make this the desire of your life. You see, it's totally different. Grace demands or, or law demands, grace imparts. Now, I want to show you something revolutionary. You're going, you, when I tell you this, you're going to think I'm like the smartest person around. I just want to impress you with my intellect today. How many of you know that the number 19 comes after the number 18? Like, that's deep right there. Like, I, I know, like, you're impressed right now at how smart I am. I mean, that's, that's huge. Say that with me. Say 18. Say 19. Now, what I want you to know about the Bible is there are no accidents. There are no coincidences. It's very, very intentional. The Holy Spirit strategically bookend two stories back-to-back about two different rich people to contrast the difference between law and grace. Luke chapter 18. A certain ruler came to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, now look at his question, What must I do? He's making it all about himself. He's making it all about his performance, his obedience, his effort, his goodness, His righteousness, what must I do? Not what have you done, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus should have given him the evangelical answer. Well, you must be born again. That's what he told Nicodemus in John 3. But he doesn't do it because he realizes this guy thinks it's all about him. He thinks it's all about what he does. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. So Jesus gives him the law. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. So the guy says, all these I've kept. So he's bragging about his performance in the law. He's boasting about how good he's doing in regards to the law since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Can I tell you, anytime you boast in the law, Anytime you boast in your righteousness, you boast in your performance, you boast in your ability, you're always going to hear one thing you lack. You're never going to be good enough for the law, no matter how hard you try. There's always going to be one thing you lack. If, if, you, if you put your righteousness in how good of a Christian you are, you're always going to hear one thing you lack, one thing you lack. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not doing enough. And you'll always hear one thing you lack if you try to put your righteousness in your performance, in your effort. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. You see, Jesus realized the greatest command is, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, including money. And he realized maybe he was doing everything else, but he still had a God of money that was more important than God in his life. And so he says, You need to let go of the God of money and come follow me. And he went away. Now look at this. Jesus gives him the law, and he's just as stingy as ever. He can't even give away one shekel. Not even one dollar can he give away after receiving the law from Jesus. Now let's look at another rich man 
in chapter 19. Because again, the Holy Spirit puts these back to back for a reason. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. Now, where are all my Baptists at? Remember Zacchaeus? He was the wee little man. The wee little man was he? For those of us who grew up Baptist, he was a chief tax collector. Now, that means he was the filthiest of all filthy. He was, he was the hated, he was the despised. Tax collectors were so hated in the Bible, the authors of the Bible gave them their own special category, would not include them with sinners. Like there were sinners, and then there were tax collectors. <laughs> because sinners were hated, but tax collectors were really hated. And he wasn't just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. So Jesus is just pointing out, this guy is like the filthiest person you can imagine, the most hated, the most despised, the most greedy, the most reprobate, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, remember, because he was a wee little man, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree. Can I tell you, the answer is always found in a tree. Just saying. He hung on a cross, it was a tree. To see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. Now notice this. No law, no commands, no thou shalt not, just grace. Like, I want to come to your house. I want to come hang out with you. I want to be your friend. Jesus shows him grace, no law. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Can I tell you, people love to mutter when, when, when they see grace. Like, like people just love to mutter. Like, like mutter, 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 mutter. It's just like, they began to mutter because Jesus didn't do things the way they thought Jesus should do them. Like, we don't like the way Jesus is doing it, so we're going to mutter. They said, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Like, Jesus, come on, give him truth, not grace. And, and they just were totally confused at what he came to do. Now, here's what I want you to see. The first guy Jesus gave law to, remember, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, and the law didn't produce anything in his life. Jesus gives grace to Zacchaeus. Look what happens in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus stood up at dinner and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. This is like a greedy, filthy, sinner, despised, cheats people out of money. He, he receives grace from Jesus, and all of a sudden he becomes the most generous man in town. Do you realize Jesus didn't command him to do any of this? Grace produced it. You see, when you receive grace, it changes your heart. Like, you don't have to try to change. You don't have to. All of a sudden, things begin to change in your life when you receive grace. Zacchaeus receives grace, and his heart begins to change. It says, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, which he did, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus didn't ask for any of this. Jesus showed him grace. And he becomes, see, you give people the law, they become stingy. You give people grace, they become generous. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this home. Not because he earned it or bought it. Jesus was just recognizing the fruit. He's saying this, this guy's obviously received salvation because look what it's producing in his life. Because this man too is a son of Abraham, which was the highest compliment you could give. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So let me now show you as we close the truth of grace. That was the power of grace. Grace will change your heart. There's areas of your life you've worked on for years. You've tried to get a handle on. You've tried to control. You've said, I'll never do this again. And you've tried to stop. I'm telling you, stop trying to stop and start receiving grace. And all of a sudden, your heart and desires will change. And you'll find yourself stopping doing things that you've wanted to stop for a long time. Not because you're trying to stop, but because your heart changes. You lose the desire. You, you lose the hunger for that. 
because you, you receive, like when you behold him in his glory, you're transformed into his image. So here's the truth of grace. John chapter 8, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. Now, the Mount of Olives is about a 15-minute walk to the temple courts. You're up on the hill overlooking the temple. You come down the hill. You're up in the temple courts. And what I want you to notice is this story takes place in the temple courts. It's not in a dirt road. It's not outside the city. It's in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Now, what I understand about adultery is it takes two people. Where's the man? And if she's caught in the act, where's the man? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but where's the guy? He's, he, he was probably one of them. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, the law will always humiliate you. The law will always condemn you. The law will always publicly shame you. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. And they were right. The law did command that. Because under the law, you'll always be condemned. Under the law, you'll never be good enough. The law will always condemn you. Now, what do you say? See, they're trying to catch Jesus. You see, if Jesus said, no, we're not going to stone her, then they would have grounds to accuse him and say, he's against the law of Moses. Throw him in jail. But if Jesus says, stone her, then everyone's going to be confused because he's preaching about a God of love. They were trying to use this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I want you to remember this detail. Jesus, son of God, bends down with his finger and he writes on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, "Let okay, we'll do it. Let's stone her. Let's kill her. But this is how we're going to do it. Let any one of you who is without sin, so who is ever here today, if you've never broken the law of Moses, you've never broken any of the commands, you get to throw the first stone at her. So if you've never failed before and you're perfect, you get to throw the first stone. And then again, he stooped down to write on the ground. Two times, I want you to notice, Jesus stoops down with his finger and writes on the ground. Now, I want you to remember the setting. Jesus is in the temple courtyard. I'm standing in the vicinity of where Jesus would have been. This was, this was around the offering box right outside the, the temple court. The, the original temple of Herod's time would have been right in this area. Today, it's all controlled. It, it's all Muslim controlled. And so you've got it. Like, you get up there. They take your Bible away. Tell you you're not allowed to pray. and not allowed to sing. Like, there's all these rules. Like, they confiscated everything from us, but we got in. So we were able to walk around and actually stand on the ground. And so if you notice, it's all stone. That's what I want you to notice. We're not on a dirt road. We're on a stone temple courtyard. Jesus, two times, reaches down with his finger and he writes on ground. When was the only other time in the Bible God uses his finger to write on stone twice? The Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, you presume to tell me about the law? I'm the one that gave you the law. It was my finger that wrote it in the first place. And you're going to try to catch me in it? You're going to use it against me? At this, those who, began to, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, meaning it doesn't get better with age. <laughs> Until only Jesus was left with the women still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. If you're here today and you want to know how Jesus feels about you, if you want to know how Jesus feels about your past, 
If you want to know how Jesus feels about the things that you're ashamed of, the things that you regret, the things that you, you did that you've been carrying around and, and, and you've just been living, feeling beat up because of the mistake. You, if you want to know how Jesus feels about you, here's how he feels about you. I don't condemn you. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save the world. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Has said they It's the truth of grace. You see, the Pharisees, they would have stoned her if they could, but they couldn't. Jesus was the only one that could. Jesus was the only one there that day who was without sin. He's the only one that qualified to throw a stone, but he wouldn't do it. God is not here to beat you up over your past. What did Jesus do? He gives her the most beautiful gift any of us could ever receive, the gift of no condemnation. What is the gift of no condemnation? It's the gift of righteousness. When you're not condemned, you're righteous, right? The gift of no condemnation is the same thing as the gift of righteousness. He gives her the gift of righteousness, the gift of no condemnation. Then he says, now go and leave your, now you have the power to leave sin. You didn't have the power to leave sin until I gave you the gift of no condemnation. You see, the church has gotten it backwards. We tell people, leave your life of sin and we won't condemn you. Leave your life of sin and we won't judge you anymore. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to give you a gift of no condemnation. I'm going to give you a gift of righteousness and that will give you the power to walk away from sin. See, this is the truth of grace. Let me make it very practical. I was with a buddy last week who was helping me drive around to my doctor's appointments because I couldn't get there on my own with my, my surgery. And I've known this guy for years, and, and for probably about 30 years of his life, he's been struggling with some stuff that, you know, an addiction that I used to struggle with, and he's been trying to get over it and trying to break free, and he's tried everything. And, and he, just, he just can't seem to stop. It's like, like I've tried. I've got, I've got to programs, I've got to workshops, I've got to this. And he was telling me he's about to go to another kind of little workshop to try to get this under control and deal with it. And I finally said, stop, stop, stop. I said, if you'll just believe the truth, you won't struggle. What do you mean? I said, if you'll just believe the truth of who God is. See, he, you grew up in the religious South. You think God is mad. You think God is disappointed. You think every time you struggle, God, God is like disappointed. Like, can't you get your act together? Like, what's your problem? Like, you view God as disappointed in you. You view God. No, God is a loving father. Like, like when my, my two-year-old started to walk last year, when, when he would take a few steps and fall down, I didn't get mad at him. I'm like, you idiot. I mean, it's not that hard. Put one foot in front of the other, you moron. No, he's like 13 months old. He's wandering around, falling all over the place. I just loved him and picked him up. I said, that's how God treats you every time you fall. God, God still sees you as a little child. You think you should be further along. God sees you as a little child. He's not shocked when you fail. He's not shocked when you struggle. He's not disappointed. He just picks you back up. He's your loving father. He understands how tough this life is. Jesus lived here for 30 years. He gets it. He experienced every temptation we've experienced. I said, if you'll begin to believe the truth about who you are, who God is, and how God sees you, You'll stop doing this. It's, it's what you believe. And I asked him this question. He got a new truck recently. I said, tell me something. Is this truck diesel or unleaded? He said, it's diesel. I said, well, let me ask you a question. When you go to the gas station, do you put diesel or unleaded in it? And he looked at me like I was stupid. He's like, well, I put diesel in it, of course. I said, why? He goes, because it's diesel. I said, why do you believe it's diesel? 
He said, well, the guy told me it was diesel when I bought it. The owner's manual said it was diesel. I said, wait a second. You, you mean you haven't taken apart the engine to make sure it's diesel? You're just believing some book? You're just believing what some guy said? You're just taking it by faith that it's diesel? He goes, well, I, guess, I guess so. So you're telling me because of what you believe, it determines how you behave. I said, let me ask you this question. Your other car was unleaded. The first time you went to the gas station in this new truck, did you have to fight the urge to put unleaded in it? Like, were you like sweating and wrestling? Because you've been doing unleaded for so long. Like, did you have to like fight that urge? Like, oh, I know I'm supposed to put diesel in it, but I really want to put the unleaded in it. Like, did you have to fight the urge? He said, no. I said, why? Because I believe it's diesel. I said, do you get it? If you just believe the truth, you're not going to have to fight the urge. The goal of Christianity is not to get you to a place where you have enough strength to fight the urge. That's not the purpose of Christianity. The purpose of Christianity is for God to give you a new heart, a new desire, to bring you to a place where it's not about fighting an urge, it's about believing the truth. Because when you believe the truth, you'll live the truth. It's not about living the truth so you can be accepted by God. It's about believing the truth so that you can live it out. If you believe you're a condemned sinner, you're going to live like a condemned sinner. If you believe you're forgiven and righteous, you'll begin to live like you're forgiven and righteous. I said, your problem is you're putting unleaded gasoline into a diesel tank. If you'll begin to believe you're diesel, you'll start putting diesel into the tank. I said, every time you go look at that stuff, you're putting unleaded gas into a diesel tank because you still don't believe you're diesel. If you'll believe the truth about who you are, your behavior will follow suit. It becomes very, very natural. But we've been so programmed with mixture. Let me give you another statement he told me later in the afternoon. When I started to break through, we went right back to the beginning. And he said, I, I get it. I just need to work on my relationship with God. Like, how many of you have ever heard that statement? I need to work on my relationship with God. It kind of sounds like it's true, doesn't it? Like, doesn't it sound like, do you see the mixture in that statement? I need to work on my relationship with God. Here's the, here's the truth. You can't be any closer to God than you are right now. Righteousness is right relationship. You either have relationship or you don't have relationship. You can't work on your relationship. You either have it or you don't. We don't work on our relationship with God. We rest in our relationship with God. I rest in the fact that he is my father. I rest in the fact that I am forgiven. I rest in the fact that I am righteous. I can't, I can't become any more righteous than I am right now. I can't become any more clean from sin than I am right now. There's nothing I can do to be any more clean, any more righteous, any more holy, or any more accepted. I either believe who I am or I don't. But I can't work on it. There's nothing for me to do. Jesus did it all. Jesus did the work on the cross. I receive it. I rest in it. And when I rest in it, I feel close to God. The more I work on my relationship, the farther I feel from God. The more I rest in my relationship, the closer I feel. Now, my proximity never changes, but how I feel changes. When I feel righteous, I feel close to God. When I feel like I've got work to do, I feel farther away from God. So it's not about me doing It's about me resting what I've already been given. This is said Be'emeth. This is the truth of grace. When I believe in the truth of grace, it sets me free and changes my life.